Hey everyone, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. I'm your host today, Dave Meyer, joined by one of the OG original Bigger Pockets members, podcast hosts, all sorts of things, Mr. Jay Scott himself. Jay, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. I feel like it's been a minute since uh, since I've talked to you guys. I know. it's It's been way too long. How how far back do you go with Bigger Pockets? 2008. Um, six months before I flipped my first house, I found Bigger Pockets because I did a Google search for how to flip houses. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I think it was something like March or April of 2008. That's incredible. I, I bet half of our listeners right now didn't even know that Bigger Pockets was around in 2008. Not to date you, Jay, but <laughs> oh, just to explain that we have. A lot of experience at Bigger Pockets. We've actually been around for about 20 years, which is incredible. And Jay has been one of the most influential investors and participants in our community. So we do have a great show that I'm very excited to have Jay on for because we're going to be answering questions, some of the our audience and some of the internet's biggest questions about the economy, about the real estate market. Hold on, hold on. I thought we were, I thought we were talking about Taylor Swift in the in the football games coming up. I'm not prepared for an economic. <laughs> well, discussion. we could we could sneak one of those questions in there. Do you have strong opinions on what's going to happen there? I don't. I, I don't. It just seems like that's all anybody's talking about these days. It doesn't feel like anybody's talking about uh, economics or real estate anymore. All I hear about is football and Taylor Swift. Well, I th- there's some sort of like escapism going on where everyone's just like tired of talking about the economy <laughs> or what's going on. But it is so important. Like we have to be talking about what's going on with the news and the housing market if we're going to make good investing decisions. And so- Unfortunately, Jay, I'm going to actually, I'm going to stick to the script and make you answer some some real questions that are going to be useful <laughs> to our audience. So let's just jump right into our first question here. Housing crash. This is the number one thing being searched right now on Google about housing, about the economy. And we want to know what you think, Jay. Are you on the housing crash side of things. And when I say housing crash, let's talk specifically about residential because I know you invest both in residential and commercial real estate. So here's the thing. First of all, when we talk about housing crash, too many people, I think, conflate this idea of uh, the economy and the housing market. And they're two very different things. And so when I hear the question, are we going to have a housing crash? Sometimes people actually are asking, are we going to see a, um, an economic market crash? Because they assume it's the same thing. Um, but historically, they're two very different things. Let me, let me ask you a question, Dave. Going back to, let's say, 1900, how many housing crashes have we seen in this country? Crashes? I want to say just one, but maybe two. Because I I'm the, most of the data I look at is from like the 40s on. So I don't know if there was one during the Depression. But I'm pretty confident since then there's only been one. Yeah, there wasn't one during the Depression, and the only housing crash we've seen in this country was in 2008. We saw a little blip in, in, in the late 80s with this thing called the savings and loan crisis, which was another recession that was kind of tied to real estate. But for the most part, every recession we've had in this country, and we've had 35 recessions over the last 160 years, every recession we've had has been non-real estate caused. And typically speaking, when you have a recession that's not caused by some foundational issue with real estate, real estate's not affected. Now, 2008 was obviously a big exception. 2008 was a real estate crisis, and it was a real estate-caused recession, and we saw a housing crash. 
But the problem there is that I think there's something called recency bias that we we're, we're, a lot of us are falling prey to. It's the last big recession we remember. And so we assume that the next recession and the one after that and the one after that are going to be similar to the one we remember the best, which was the last one. But the reality is 2008 was very out of the ordinary. It was the only time we've seen housing crash in the last 120 years. So I think the likelihood of a housing crash anytime soon, and it's not just because of historical reasons, we can talk about other reasons. Um, I think it's very unlikely that regardless of what the economy does over the next couple of years, I think it's very unlikely we see a housing crash or even a a major housing uh, softening. Well, see, Jay, this is why we bring you on here. You have so many good stats and an excellent opinion on this. And I I completely agree with you about this. I I was kind of cause, calling it a year or two ago, this like housing market trauma that I think my generation, I'm a millennial, um, had. And a lot of people around my age, you know, grew up during this era when the housing market was a disaster for most people. And they feel like that that might happen again. And you know, of course, there's always a chance. But as Jay has provided us with um, some really helpful context. That is not the normal situation in a broader economic downturn. And I, I'm curious what you think about this, because part of me thinks there's this recency bias, but there's also this desire for the housing market to crash by a lot of people. For people who might not be investors or own properly currently, I think a lot of people look at prices now and the relative unaffordability and are hoping or rooting for a housing market crash, even though it sounds like you think that might not be likely. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of people in this country that are really unhappy with the direction of the economy and their personal finances. I think inflation at 9% a year and a year and a half ago, um, kind of really threw people and and uh, put people in a pretty bad situation. I mean, we talk a lot about the wealth gap in this country. There's a big gap between those who have money, those who have hard assets, real estate, and stocks. Ten um, percent of this country uh, are millionaires, but the other ninety percent are struggling, and there's a big gap between the two. And those who are struggling. They don't want to be struggling. And they remember 10 years ago when there was a a crash after 2008 and all the people that had lots of money started buying up houses and buying up stocks and buying up all the hard assets. And they want to go back to that time and they want to have a chance to participate in that. Unfortunately, I I don't think we're going to see that type of opportunity again anytime soon. And yeah, there's a lot of frustration out there. And it's also, uh, I've talked a lot about this over the last couple of weeks. There's a big disconnect between economic data. The economy is looking really good purely from a data standpoint, but economic sentiment or public sentiment is just the opposite. There are a lot of people who don't feel like things are good. People don't feel like uh, the economy is moving in the right direction. They don't feel like their personal finances uh, are moving in the right direction. And so there's this big disconnect between what the data is telling us and how people are feeling. And so, yeah, it's it's a tough time out there right now. Okay. So I do want to dig into that disconnect that you just mentioned a second ago, and we're going to get right into that after the break, along with some of the other hottest questions in real estate, like when will mortgage rates come down? Will affordability ever improve? And what is the single biggest economic risk right now? Stay tuned. 
Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor, like me, to get six months of Rent Ready for $1, which is crazy. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through Rent to Retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, Rent to Retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. Welcome back to Bigger News. I'm here with Jay Scott hashing out some of the most debated economic questions in real estate right now. If you remember right before the break, Jay pointed out that there's a big disconnect between what the economic data is telling us versus how people, the American people, actually feel. So let's dig into that. That's a great topic. I want let's let's dump into that a little bit because I see the same thing. When you look at traditional measures of the economy, things like GDP, it grew in Q4 and it actually started to accelerate at the end of Q4. We also see the labor market has been up and down a little bit the last few months, but generally it's just very, you know, unemployment rate is very low in historical context and there are many different ways to measure the labor market, but many of them point to strength. And so when you look at sort of these old school or traditional ways of looking at the economy, it looks great. But you see 
people are frustrated. They have a lot of pessimism about the economy. And I'm curious, do you think it's because that that gap in wealth that you mentioned? Because when you look at GDP, that's basically a measurement of how big the pie is growing. But it doesn't really tell you anything about how that pie is being divided up between people in the United States. Well, well this is a weird thing because, yes, we have really poor public sentiment right now, people feeling stressed and strapped and, and not happy with their personal finances. But at the same time, they're spending money. I mean, you look at holiday shopping. We were up 14% year over year for holiday shopping this year. Um, people are spending money. And despite the fact that um, that college loan repayments restarted, so people you would think would be more strapped there, um, the, the cost to rent right now, 52% uh, more expensive to rent than own right now. So you would think people are feeling strapped paying their, their rent. Um, food costs have obviously gone through the roof. And, and, and even though inflation has come down, we're still seeing higher than, than typical uh, food inflation. So that thing when people go to the grocery store once or twice a week, they're getting hit pretty hard. So you would think it would impact people's spending habits. But the fact that we saw GDP grow at 3.9%, the fact that we saw year-over-year uh, -year holiday spending up 14%, that tells me that that people aren't really feeling it. And and I'm thinking that part of the issue or, or part of the, the reason for that is, number one, we are seeing that, that credit cards are getting maxed out. Savings is at the lowest rate in history right now. So people are running out of money. But at the same time, the average homeowner has $200,000 worth of equity in their home that they can tap, not Amazing. even including that 20% that the lender requires them to keep in. So People can tap home equity if they need to. The stock market is at all-time highs. So anybody that owns stock has the ability to cash out their some of their, their stock holdings, and they have access to cash. Anybody that holds Bitcoin or gold or other hard assets, those things are going through the roof. So people can sell their assets, they have access to cash, and they can kind of just keep this, this gravy train rolling. And so I think as long as the economy is moving along and asset prices are going up, people are going to find access to cash one way or the other, and they're going to keep spending. And so it's just a question of is is this uh, this musical chairs is the music going to stop at some point, um, and we're going to see everything come crashing down. I've been surprised personally, Jay, with some of the things that you mentioned. You know, back in September when student loans resumed, I was like, okay, this, things have to start slowing down. Or you know, you periodically get these reports from the Fed or other sources that say that all the excess savings from the pandemic, from stimulus checks, that has all been depleted. But it keeps going, um, and uh, you know, we do. Obviously, the credit card stuff is concerning, but I personally felt like the writing was on the wall six months ago. But it's it continues to go on, and I continue to be surprised. So I think that is. One of the things I'm going to keep a close eye on going, you know, throughout this year is just what is going on with consumer spending, because that makes up 70 percent of the U.S. economy. And so as long as people keep spending, as Jay said, like that bodes well, at least for the traditional ways of measuring the economy like GDP. Now, I do want to get back to sort of the housing market a little bit. You mentioned that you don't think the housing market is going to crash. Can you just talk to us a little bit about some of the fundamentals of the housing market and why you think the housing market is poised to at least remain relatively stable in the coming years? Yeah. So it all boils down to supply and demand. 
just like everything else in the economy, if you look at supply and demand trends um, and supply and demand pressures, you get an idea of where prices are likely to head. And um, it shouldn't surprise anybody that we are in, in the single family world are seeing high demand and low supply right now. And anytime you have high demand and low supply, uh, prices tend to go up, or at least they stabilize. And so historically, uh, we we generally see about 1.6 million properties on the market at any given time in this country. We're at about half that right now. So there aren't a lot of properties out there to buy. Supply is low. At the same time, heading out of the Great Recession 10 years ago, uh, we were at about 5 million units um, underserved. There are there was demand for about 5 million more housing units um, than we had. Well, we've been building units at about the same rate as demand has been increasing for units. So based on that, we can assume that we're still about 5 million units short in this country on, on housing. Uh, new homes, we completed, what, 700,000 last year, I think it was. Um, or maybe we sold 700,000. So that's still like seven years um, worth of inventory that we need to sell to catch up to the demand in new housing. So long story short, low supply, high demand, not enough building basically means that that prices are going to be propped up. And uh, Case-Shiller data for, for November just came out a couple days ago, and, and that data is always a few months behind. Um, but data for November basically indicated that we saw a 5% year-over-year increase in housing prices, and housing prices are once again at all-time highs. So things aren't slowing down yet. Um, I suspect they will at some point, but again, I don't think there's going to be a crash because I think that this, this low supply and, and what's driving low supply, people might ask, well, it's the fact that millions of homeowners, 85% of homeowners or something like that, maybe it was 87%, um, have fixed rate mortgages at under 5%. Something like 70-some percent have under 4%. And so homeowners aren't going to sell their houses right now and, and get rid of these great mortgages just to go out and buy something else that's overpriced and, and have to get a, a, a mortgage at 6 or 7%. So I think this low supply is likely to persist. And I think the demand, both from people who are paying 50% more to rent and now want to buy, investors who want to buy more property, large institutions like like BlackRock and, and, and others, hedge funds that want to buy, there's going to be a lot of demand out there. So I don't see prices coming down anytime soon, even if we do see a softening economy. That's a great way of framing it. I think for our listeners, it's really important to remember that housing crashes don't happen in a bubble. It really does come down to supply and demand. And you can analyze each side of those. And as Jay said, when you talk about supply, it's very, very low right now. And so if you think that there's going to be a housing crash or you want to know if there's going to be a housing crash, you have to ask yourself, where would supply come from? Like, where is it going to materialize from? And I just, I don't see it. You know, like construction is actually doing decently right now, but it would take years at this at this decent clip to eliminate the shortage you talked about. You mentioned the lock-in effect, and that's constraining supply. It's also worth mentioning that inventory was already going down even before the pandemic because people have been staying in their homes longer. And lastly, I know a lot of people, especially on YouTube, talk about foreclosures coming in and starting to add supply, but there's just no evidence of that. You might see a headline that it's up double from where it was in 2021. Great. It's still about a third of where it was before the pandemic, and it's at one ninth of what it was 
during the uh, the great financial crisis. So I just I don't see it. I don't I I I hope I'm wrong because I do think it would help the housing market if there was more inventory, but I just don't see where it's coming from. At this point, it looks like there's only one thing that's going to drive more supply, more inventory, and that's mortgage rates coming down, interest rates coming down. Because at that point, people feel more comfortable selling their houses and buying something else because they know they can trade their 4% mortgage for a 5% mortgage or a 55 or a 4.5% mortgage. And so people are going to be more comfortable doing that. But what's the other thing that happens if interest rates come down? <laughs> Demand goes up. Demand's going to yeah. go up. So even if we fix the supply problem, it's just going to, the way we fix it is likely going to create more demand. And so um, I'm not saying that that nothing could impact the market, but I think it would take some major economic shock. Um, it would take a, a black swan event or it would take some major um, economic softening, uh, the labor market like imploding and, and unemployment uh, spiking, something like that before we really saw any major uh, increase in supply. And there's no indication that, that we're anywhere near that. So I, I think that I think we're going to see prices about where they are for the next several years. That's really important to note that there's always a possibility of what's quote unquote called black swan events. Basically something Jay and I and no one out there can really predict. These are things like, you know, the in Russian invasion of Ukraine or COVID, you know, things that just come out of nowhere and no pundits or people who are informed about the economy can really forecast those types of things. So, of course, those are always there. Uh, but just reading the data on the supply side, I, I totally agree with you. Just to play devil's advocate for a minute here, one way to, you, even if you couldn't increase supply, you could change supply and dynamics in the market if demand really fell. Like if people just didn't want to buy homes in the same way. And I do feel like, you know, you hear these things that if housing affordability is at 40-year lows. And so do you do you have any fear or thoughts that maybe we see a real drop off in the number of people who want to buy homes and maybe that would change the dynamics of the market a bit? I suspect that we will see that trend, but I think that's a 5, 10, 15 year trend. I don't think that's something that's going to hit us in the next year or two or three, because again, it really, it, it, it's pretty simple. Right now it costs 50% more to rent than to own. And nobody in their right mind is going to trade their 3% mortgage to pay rent at 50% more. And so I do see this becoming a quote unquote renter nation over the next 10 years. Um, but again, I don't see that being a, a short term thing. I think that's going to be a consequence of the market fixing itself. I don't think that's going to be a driver of the market fixing itself. So the one thing you mentioned that could change the market, and I think it's really important to mention that when we say, quote unquote, the market, most people think we're only talking about prices. And that is a very important part of any market. But when you look at an economic market, there is also quantity, the amount of homes that are sold. And that's super low right now, just so everyone knows. We're at, you know, I think 40, 50 percent below where we were during the peak during COVID. Um, so that's come down a lot. One of the things that you mentioned could potentially change, in my mind at least, both sides of the market, both the number of sales and where prices go, is if mortgage rates come down. So, Jay, I can't let you get out of here without a forecast or at least some some prognosticating on what is going to happen with mortgage rates in the next year. So what, what are your thoughts? 
so I think they'll come down. It, it doesn't take a genius to, to make that prediction. I think most people are predicting that. And the reason for that is as of December, the, the Federal Reserve, the Fed basically uh, reverse course said, we are done our hiking cycle. Um, for interest rates for the federal funds rate. Um, at this point, we the, the next move will probably be down. And when the government starts to lower that federal funds rate, that, that kind of core short-term interest rate, that's going to have an impact on other markets like the mortgage market and mortgage interest rates. And so the, the market is pricing in that, that core federal funds rate um, could likely drop from, where is it? It's at like five to five and a quarter right now to somewhere between 3.75 and 4% by December. So 40% of, of, of investors um, are betting their money that uh, the federal funds rate is going to be down around 4% by the end of, of this year. So that's about a, a point and a half less than where it is now. Does that mean we're going to see a point and a half less in, in mortgage rates? Probably not because that spread between the federal funds rate and mortgage rates right now is, is smaller than normal. Um, so that, that spread will probably expand a little bit. But I think a, a point and a quarter drop in federal funds rate will likely translate to about three quarters of a point in, in a drop in mortgage rates. So if we're right now at about 6 6.6, 6.7, 6.8%, um, three quarters of a point puts us around 6%. So if I had to bet, I would guess that, that by the end of this year, we're somewhere between five and three quarters and 6% mortgage rates, which is a decent drop, but it still doesn't put us anywhere close to that two, three, four percent that we were seeing a couple years ago. It, it will open up the market a little bit. There will be some people selling. Um, you mentioned foreclosures increasing. It turns out that the bulk of the foreclosures that we're seeing are houses that were bought in the last two years. And so there'll be an opportunity for people that bought in the last couple of years who are struggling to, to get out. And so, yeah, I do see mortgage rates coming down, but I, I, if, if I had to bet, I would say five and three quarters to 6% by the end of the year. I hope you're right. And I, I do think that's kind of general consensus. Uh, I think for most of the year, it will probably be in the sixes and it will trend downwards yep. um, over time. I do think personally, that it's not going to be a linear thing. I, you know, you see that it's relatively volatile right now. Some, you know, it went down in December, it's back up in January, but I think the long-term trend is going to be downward and that is beneficial. Do you think this is, you know, you mentioned it's going to open things up a little bit. Like, how do you see this playing out in the residential housing market throughout 2024, just given your your belief that rates will come down relatively slowly? I, I think it's, it's going to have probably pretty close to the same effect on, on demand as it does on supply. So I think rates coming down is going to encourage some people to sell and it's going to encourage some people to buy. And I think those forces will pretty much even each other out. Um, in some markets, we may see prices continue to rise a little bit. In some markets, we may see prices start to fall a little bit. But I think across the country, we're going to see kind of that same average, what's 3% uh, per year is kind of the average of, of home price appreciation over the last hundred and some years. So I, I think we'll be in that 3 to 5% appreciation range for much of the country, if I had to, to guess. Here's the other thing to keep in mind. You mentioned that this isn't going to be linear. 
this is going to be an interesting year. We have an election coming up in November. And historically, the Fed does not like to make moves right around the the election. They don't want to be perceived as as being partisan and, and trying to help one candidate or another. And so I think it's very unlikely. In fact, I think there's only two times in, in modern history where the Fed has um, moved interest rates within a couple months of the election. And so I think it's very unlikely that we'll see any interest rate movement between July and November, um, which is a significant portion of the year when you consider that we're unlikely to see any movement between now and March. So that basically gives us March, April, May, June, and then December. And so we have about half the year where we could see interest rate movements. So if we do see any movements, it'll probably be big movements in that small period of time as opposed to linearly over the entire year. That's really interesting. I had not heard that before. And it sort of makes sense that the Fed doesn't want to be perceived as partisan. Um, So that's definitely something to keep an eye out for. It makes you kind of wonder if there's going to be a frenzy. It's already sort of the busy time for home buying. You know, what what do you say, April through June, basically? So that's that's the busiest peak of uh, home buying activity and might be the most significant movement in interest rates. So we might see a frenzy in Q2 then. Yeah, and we can take that one step further. Um, while the Fed doesn't like to seem partisan leading up to an election, um, there is evidence that they tend to be in favor of supporting the incumbent, um, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. And they like to see that the economy is doing well in an election year. Um, and so what we've seen historically, again, not right before the election, but typically um, the, the few months prior to an election or the few months prior to prior to the election, um, we see the Fed make moves that tend to favor the economy um, uh, and to favor the incumbent. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see a drop in rates in the March, April, May timeframe, even if the, the economy isn't necessarily indicating that's necessary. And I think that's something that Jerome Powell kind of was preparing us for in December when he came out and said, hey, we're open to dropping interest rates if we need to. After two years of basically saying, we're going to keep rates higher for longer, he suddenly reversed course and kind of prepared everybody for, for us to start considering dropping rates. Um, and so I think that that just could be a, just kind of a signal that they're going to be a little bit more dovish in the, in the first half of this year than they otherwise would be. Okay. So we are getting into some of the good stuff here and we're about to cover a recent economic change that will impact lending and the biggest economic risk to investors right after the break. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash biggerpockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor, to get six months of rent ready for $1. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from six, 12, and 24 month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com slash VP. Connectinvest.com slash VP. Are you about to sell a property? Wait like 60 seconds because this could save you thousands. Our friends at 1031 Pros have saved their clients more than half a billion dollars with a B in taxes with 1031 tax-deferred exchanges. With the 1031 exchange, you can say goodbye to the huge capital gains taxes when selling and roll your property's profit into another investment that could make you even more. Whether you're an individual investor, part of a larger group, or a title or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help. Trust me, I've done 1031 exchanges on multiple properties before, and it has saved me tens of thousands in taxes, if not more. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and they specialize in all types of exchanges, delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states. And right now, Bigger Pockets listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com slash BP. That's my1031pros.com slash BP to get $250 off today. Oh, and make sure to mention Bigger Pockets when you call. They take care of our people over there. Take a second and imagine this immediate cash flow, above average rent, built in equity, and a foolproof exit plan. No, it's not 2012 again. This is just what it's like to invest with Integra Development Group. They've simplified the real estate investing process so everyone can invest. With their new construction single-family rent-to-own homes, you'll get aggressively priced brand new properties that have tenants in place now in one of the fastest-growing states in America, Florida. Here's how IDG's rent-to-own strategy works. You get exclusive access to inventory with aggressive pricing thanks to IDG's builder-partner relationships. Then, invest and collect immediate cash flow with tenants already in place at or very close to closing. With the demand for new builds, your tenants pay above-market rent so you rake in more cash flow. And you'll get built-in equity and appreciation with an already agreed-to purchase price at year three, helping the tenants become homeowners while you build wealth. That's investing simplified. 
So secure your next investment property today with Integra Development Group at IntegraDG.com. That's IntegraDG.com to start investing today. Welcome back, everyone. Jay Scott and I are in the thick of it talking about the most pressing issues in real estate right now. Before the break, we got Jay's predictions on interest rates and what we can expect from the Fed in 2024. While we're on the topic of the Fed, and man, I, I pray for the day we we don't follow the Fed as closely as we've had to the last couple of years, but uh, they recently made an announcement in a different part of their you know directive here and announced that the bank term funding program is ending on March 11th. Jay, can you just tell us a little bit about what this program is and what this means for the financial system? Yeah, so last March, uh, there was this big regional bank called Silicon Valley Bank. Anybody that that wasn't paying attention, basically. It um, feels so long ago. I can't, I can't, there's so much has happened since then. I can't believe that was only a year ago. It was less than a year ago. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, but basically, this bank, um, they bought a whole lot of treasury bonds. And based on the movement of those treasury bonds, the value of those bonds fell considerably. Um, the bank was in kind of in a bad financial situation or it was looking like they could be. So a lot of, in, not investors, but depositors in that bank decided, started to take their money out. And a lot of those depositors were venture capitalists and startup tech firms that had literally millions of dollars in the bank. And so um, some ridiculous amount of money like closer to $50 billion, um, was at risk of flowing out of that bank over a couple of days. And the bank essentially became insolvent. Um, the state of California basically took the bank into receivership. And the federal government said, we need to make sure that this isn't like a, a, a broader issue that contaminates other parts of the banking sector. And so they set up this thing called the bank term funding program where they told banks, if you're in this situation where you bought too many treasury bonds and movement in bonds has caused you to lose a lot of money, um, come to us and we'll give you a loan against those bonds to ensure that you have lots of cash on hand and, and you're not facing this crisis. So they set up this thing called the Bank Term Funding Program, which was a way of loaning money to these banks that said they needed it. And between March of last year and June of last year, banks basically went to the fund and said, we need $100 billion. Oh, just that? Yep, $100 billion. Um, a lot of it was in the first couple weeks, but over the first three months, $100 billion was borrowed from, from this fund. For the next six months through November, December, um, essentially nothing was borrowed. Basically, banks indicated that they were in a pretty good position. They didn't need to, to borrow money from the government, and they were very favorable loan terms, by the way. So, um, so, But banks basically indicated we don't need to borrow. Then in December the Fed started talking about, or the Treasury started talking about getting rid of this program. It was supposed to be a one-year term, which means the program would end in March. Right around the time they started talking about getting rid of the program, suddenly banks started borrowing again. <laughs> banks went back to the program and said, I need money, I need money, I need money. Yeah. And it went from $100 billion borrowed to $170 billion over the course of about a month. So the most likely scenario here was that banks realized that they were getting near the end of having the ability to borrow cheap money from the uh, from the government. And so not because they needed the money, if they needed the money, they probably would have gone and gotten it sooner. But because they saw an opportunity to get this cheap money, they went and they took another 70 billion. And so a lot of people are looking and saying, well, obviously, this this program still needed because another 70 billion was borrowed over the last two months, banks are still in, in need. But the more likely 
scenario is that banks were just taking advantage of this cheap money, and that's the reason they borrowed. And there haven't really been any banks that have needed the money since last June. So I don't see the, uh, them phasing out this program as of March to be a big deal. Um, they've also said, the Fed has also said that anybody that's borrowed money doesn't need to pay it back right away. They can pay it back over years. So there's no risk to the banks that have already borrowed. And more importantly, even if they were to get rid of this program on March 11th, I think the date is, if on March 12th there was a bank that was in trouble, I have a feeling the Fed would step in and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to bail you out. So I don't think there's a lot of risk here. I think it's something that's going to be talked about over the next two months uh, a good bit. But I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a non-event. And uh, the, the, the government's already indicated they're going to bail out anybody that's in trouble. So anybody big enough that's in trouble. So yeah. I, I don't see this being uh, uh, any, any real issue anywhere. In a way, you can see it as a sign of strength, right? If the, if the Fed is feeling confident enough, as you said, they'll bail out people who need it. And if they're saying, basically, people don't need it, hopefully that means that the acute issues with the financial system last year with Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of the follow-ons after that is alleviated. Um, and now there's a little bit more confidence in the banking system. So that's great news. Yeah, and those banks that had... Trouble last year. They were in a very specific sector. They were in the tech sector. Their profile of borrower and depositor was very different than the typical bank. And that led to a lot of the issues, not so much a, an issue with the underlying banking system. All right, Jay, last question before we let you get out of here. Is there one economic issue or risk that's keeping you up at night? Or what are you most worried about or going to be following the most closely this year? I've been saying this for a good six or nine months now, but I think the biggest risk to our economy is the cost of debt for small and medium-sized businesses. There are a lot of businesses out there that need debt to run. They rely on bank loans or SBA loans, or maybe they need equity. They, they get money from venture capitalists if they're in the tech space. Um, and a lot of businesses are running negative. They don't make a profit. They rely on this debt to kind of grow and get them to the point where they become profitable, but they aren't profitable yet. And a few years ago, they were able to borrow this money at 3%, 4%. Um, in, the, in the case of venture capital, they were able to, to get investment money um, whenever they needed it. And typically, these loans or these investments are on a two to three year runway meaning that in two to three years, they either need to be refinanced or recapitalized or um, companies need to go out and get new investment because they're going to run out of money. And here we are two to three years after interest rates started to go up. And a lot of these small and medium sized businesses are now facing a situation where they need to refinance their debt or they need to get new debt or they need to get new investment. And it turns out the cost of capital right now for obvious reasons, because interest rates have gone up 5%, the cost of that debt has gone up, up tremendously. And so small businesses that were borrowing at 3 or 4% three years ago now need to borrow at 6 or 7%. And business owners can't afford this. And so to borrow at those rates, they need to cut costs, they need to lay people off, they need to scale down their operations. And what we've seen is that bankruptcies have gone through the roof over the last year. And on the horizon, there are a whole lot more bankruptcies looming. And so I think this, this risk to small businesses is probably the biggest risk to the, the economy over the next 12 to 24 months until interest rates start to come down. This is a really underreported issue, it feels like, because you see you hear these huge things where it's like, oh, tech, you know, UPS yesterday laid off 12,000 people. That's a huge deal, right? 
But when you look at who is employed and where, most people work for small businesses. You know, like you, you see these high profile things, but the American economy in so many ways is based off of small business. And so if, as you say, a lot of these companies are facing bankruptcy or challenges, that is maybe going to keep me up more at night than it has been over the last couple of years or last couple of months. Yeah. And it's not just the small and medium-sized businesses. I think they're the ones that are most at risk. But even companies like Target and Walmart, uh, they finance their operations by issuing bonds. They raise money by issuing bonds. A couple of years ago, they could raise a billion dollars by issuing bonds at 3%. Well, Nobody's going to buy bonds at 3% anymore because you can get U.S. bonds at, at 4 and 5% these days. So if Walmart or Target wanted to go out and, and raise a bunch of money to, to finance their operations and to continue to grow, they're going to have to issue bonds at 6 or 7%. And that's a huge difference in their bottom line, how much they're paying in interest. And so if they can't expand operations as quickly as they were, or as, as much as they were, that's going to impact their business. That's going to impact GDP. That's going to impact their hiring. That's going to impact how much they can pay in, in additional wages, and that's going to reverberate through the economy. So it's not just small and medium-sized businesses that are going to struggle. I think they're the ones at biggest risk, um, but I think even big businesses, um, we're going to start to see uh, wage growth slowing. I think we're going to start to see more layoffs, and I think we're going to see less growth over the next year or two, in, again, until interest rates start to come down. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. If you guys didn't know this, Jay and I actually wrote a book together. It's called Real Estate by the Numbers. It teaches you how to be an expert at deal analysis. So if you want to learn more from Jay and myself, you can check that out on the Bigger Pockets website. Otherwise, Jay, where can people connect with you? Yeah, uh, jscott.com. So go there and that links out to everything you might want to know about me. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Bigger News. We hope this discussion and insight into what's going on in the housing market and the economy helps you make informed decisions about your real estate investing portfolio and really what you do with your money, generally speaking. If this is helpful to you, we appreciate your feedback and a positive review. Uh, we always love knowing what types of episodes you like most here on the Bigger Pockets podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you very soon for the next episode of the podcast. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. 
Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.